0: and welcome to the Stephen King cast, One Man's Musings on the Works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review a different entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week we are looking at The Body from 1983's collection of novellas, Different Seasons. Now, in this collection we have Shawshank Redemption and we have App Pupil. Uh, We have The Body and then the fourth one is The Breathing Method. This podcast is the last review that i'm doing of any of these stories from different seasons um i've reviewed shawshank redemption rita hayworth and the shawshank redemption i apologize i've reviewed apt pupil and here i'm reviewing the body um i've also reviewed uh shawshank redemption the movie Apt pupil the movie and stay tuned next week as i review uh rob reiner's 1986 classic stand by me um I'm not going to be reviewing the breathing method because uh, I just—it's a story that I find very boring. Um, it doesn't really do anything for me, and I want to make sure that this podcast, you know, is something that I enjoy doing. I don't want to feel as though I'm, uh, you know, punishing myself. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I want to move on from different seasons. Uh, it, you know, the, the podcast episodes are coming out, you know, week by week. Um, but I've been really working with this particular uh, publication since early September, and as I record this, it's mid October. So I, I want to move on to the next uh, to the next publication. Um, but stand by me, um, sorry, the body. It's it's a classic, um, and it is the the. Um the, the, the novella that a lot of people point to um, when they run into non-Stephen King fans who talk about, oh, I don't like Stephen King. You know, he's scary. You know, he's that, that guy that likes to scare us. You know, I don't like blood and gut stuff. And this novella, along with, um, you know, Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption tend to be the two examples that people give to... You know, provide a counter argument to the belief that Stephen King is just a horror writer, just you know, a scare tactician. Um, that there's something else to him, and this novella is beloved by a lot of Stephen King fans. Um, and you know, they say that this means something to them, and I know a lot of people that it means something to them, and this novella of course was taken by rob reiner and spread to the masses with 1986's um stand by me um which i feel well i'll get into the review of that that next week so so make sure that you stick around now before i get into the body itself i feel as though stephen king is is working towards something all right in 1986 um he's going to publish it and it, I don't know, part of it is because I, I, um, I have a real preference to it, partially because that was the first Stephen King anything that I had read. Um, but if you ask people what their favorite Stephen King novel is, a lot of them are going to say it. There's something special about it. And I think that he worked through some uh tropes and he created some concepts and some archetypes that he took and he carried into it and so i just see the body really as just it's a rough draft um for for what he's going to do later on um so it's a rough draft that he's just later going to polish and perfect when it comes time for for it so before i get um any further into the review i'm going to read the wikipedia summary The Body is a novella by American writer Stephen King, originally published in his 1982 collection, Different Seasons, and in 1986 adapted into the film, Stand By Me. Some changes were made to the plot of the film, including changing the setting date from 1960 to 1959 and the location of Castle Rock from Maine to Oregon. The story takes place during the summer of 1960 in the fictional town of Castle Rock, Maine. After a boy from Chamberlain, Maine, named Ray Brower, disappears and is presumed dead, Gordy Lachance and his three friends, Chris Chambers, Teddy Duchamp, and Vern Tessio set out to find his body after telling their parents they will be camping out. During the course of their journey, the boys, who all come from abusive, dysfunctional families, come to grips with some of the harsh truths of growing up in a small factory town that does not seem to offer them much in the way of a future. In comparison to King's prior works, the narrative of the body is complicated in that it is told in the first-person point of view by the now 40-something novelist Gordon Lachance. Most of the story is a straight retrospective of what happened, but comments or entire chapters that relate to the present time are interspersed throughout. Although he is only 12 at the time of the story, Gordy's favorite diversion is writing and storytelling. Three times during the narrative, he tells stories to his friends, and two stories are presented in the text as short stories by Gordon Lachance, complete with attribution to the magazines in which they were published. So here is the actual plot. Vern Tessio informs his three friends that he has overheard his older brother Billy talking with his friend Charlie Hogan about the location of the corpse of Ray Brower, a boy from Chamberlain, a town 40 miles or so east of Castle Rock who has gone missing, while going out to pick blueberries with one of his mother's pails. The four friends decide that they will find it, so as to be famous. The boys walk along the railroad tracks towards the presumed location of the corpse. Along the way, they trespass at the town dump and are chased by trashman Milo Pressman's dog Chopper. Milo insults Teddy's father, which causes Teddy to unleash his anger on Milo. Gordy and Vern are nearly run over by a train while crossing a bridge. While at a resting point, Chris predicts that Gordy will grow up to become a famous writer, perhaps he he will even write about his friends one day. When they finally find the spot where the body lies, a gang of bullies arrives just after they do. The gang is composed of Vern's older brother Billy, Charlie Hogan, Chris's older brother Richard Eyeball Chambers, Norman Fuzzy Brackowitz, John Ace Merrill, and two others. The older boys are upset to see the four friends and during an argument, Chris pulls a gun belonging to his father from his bag and fires into the air. Chris then threatens Ace, the leader of the gang. After a brief standoff, Ace realizes that Chris is serious and the teenagers leave. Having seen the body, the boys realize that there is nothing else to be done with it and return home without further incident. The older boys decide to phone in the location of the body as an anonymous tip and it is eventually found by the authorities as a result. Some days after the confrontation, Ace and Fuzzy break Gordy's nose and fingers and kick him in the testicles, and are on the verge of harming him more seriously when they are run off by Gordy's neighbor Aunt Evie Chambers, Chums. Chris's brother breaks his arm and leaves his face looking like a Canadian sunrise. Ted and Vern get less severe beatings, the boys refuse to identify their assailants to the authorities, and there are no further repercussions. The narration then goes into fast-forward. Gordon describes the next year or so briefly, saying that Teddy and Vern drift off, befriending some younger boys. In high school, just as Chris predicted, Gordy begins taking college preparation courses. Unexpectedly, so does Chris. In spite of abuse from his father, taunts from his classmates, and distrust from his teachers and school counselors, he manages to be successful with the help of Gordy. He mentions that Ace spent time in prison, and by the time he's released, he's a mess. The final two chapters describe the fate of Gordy's three friends, none of whom survived past young adulthood. Vern is killed in a house fire after a party. Teddy, while under the influence of alcohol and drugs, crashes his car, and he and his passengers are killed. Chris, who became an outstanding high school and college student and was in his second year of law school, is stabbed to death after trying to stop an argument in a fast food restaurant. Gordon, the only survivor, continues to write stories through college, and publishes a number of them in small literary journals and men's magazines. His first novel becomes a bestseller and a successful film. At the time of writing about the events of 1960, he has written seven novels about the supernatural. Gordon has a wife and three children. Gordon is also revealed to be a veteran of the Vietnam War and the counterculture of the 1960s, occasionally referred to in the flash-forward narratives during the main story. So I'm just going to to dive right into it. Um, you know the, the body. Um, really, what it is? It's it's a quest, right? It, it's it's a quest of our characters heading off into the wilderness. It it, it follows a, a very familiar archetypal structure, um, you know, of that of the hero's journey. Um, there are three events leading up to the climax, right? You you have the um, uh, the the scene at the junkyard. You have the uh, the train scene and and you have the leeches um and ultimately that leads right to uh the reveal of the body itself um and when they they confront the body they also uh confront their bullies um and then everything after that is the resolution so it's a pretty tightly knit little story that follows the traditional um you know uh plot structure um and it's, it's, so basically it begins with an italicized section set in the present. And we know immediately that's the narrator looking back on his past. It then cuts to the past, and we are placed in Castle Rock, the town previously established in the dead zone in Cujo. Well, the events of this story take place years before either of those novels. Early on, uh, I noticed that King references Dandelion Wine. Uh, early on, which to me is just a shout out to Ray Bradbury, who is a major influence of Stephen King, and whose novel *Dandelion Wine* is the template for the the coming of age tale, um, which Stephen King uses to to great effect. Um, and like Ray Bradbury, Stephen King loves creating fictional towns and populating them with with rich characters. Um, Greensville, I off the top of my head. I'm sorry, I'm not doing my research on this, but um, oh my god. Uh, Greensville, Illinois, I want to say, is, is the name of Ray Bradbury's uh, little town that he likes to, to write of, um, just like Castle Rock is for Stephen King. So as always, King paints a scene and places the reader firmly, firmly in that scene. Um, and, and the first scene that he, he puts us in is that is the treehouse, right? And, and the boys that we start to get to know, you know, Chris, Gordy, and Teddy, um are all very well realized characters Ant and Vern um teddy we learn has suffered a horrific attack from his father who had shoved both sides of his head against the stove melting his ears in the process now this is such a, a specific injury that sets the character apart from other characters that you might have read that have suffered abuse um so I just, it really sets him apart. And, you know, King doesn't waste time detailing his character traits either. He's, he's fun-loving, he's a risk-taker, he'd do anything on a dare, right? You know, he's hot-headed. So we learn who, who um, Teddy is right away. And we meet Vern, um, and with Vern, the thrust of the story reveals itself, right? Along with the revelation, um, sorry, sorry, w- revelation, um, that our narrator's older brother has died earlier that spring i cried when i heard and i cried more at the funeral and i couldn't believe that dennis was gone that anyone that used to knuckle my head or scare me with a rubber spider until i cried or give me a kiss when i fell down and scrape both knees bloody and whisper in my ear now stop crying you baby that a person who had touched me could be dead it hurt and it scared me that he could be dead but it seemed to have taken out all of the heart of my parents for me dennis was hardly more than an acquaintance. He was 10 years older than me, if you can dig it, and he had his own friends and classmates. We ate at the same table for a lot of years, and sometimes he was my friend and sometimes my tormentor, but mostly he was, you know, just a guy. When he died, he'd been gone for a year except for a couple of furloughs. We didn't even look alike. It took me a long time after that summer to realize that most of the tears I cried were for my mom and my dad. Fat lot of good it did them, or me. So... This information combined with the quest to find the dead body offered by Vern tells us that this will be the tale of a character's growth from childhood to adulthood, the body being the symbolic death of his childhood, the confirmation of his eventual future. After the boys make the decision to find the body, the readers are given a section of Gordy's first story about a boy named Chico with brother issues. Gordy later criticizes his own story and I'm glad that he did. Um, and... I don't know. This, I wanted to love reading this story. I have not read this story, and I mean the body, um, since I first read it when I was around Gordy's age, right? And I got to the scene, and I was into it, right? And I got to the scene where all of a sudden it's about Chico. And I, it was just, my experience just came screeching to a halt. And I just stopped caring. And I started to get frustrated because this to me just, it seems very indulgent. Stephen King is going to illustrate, you know, Gordy's um, storytelling abilities with the ass Hogan scene later on. Um, but this, to include a scene that is so on the nose, right? The, the death of the brother, it, it's it had already been established. It, very very well subtly this like I said is just it's a little bit too obvious um and just shoving it down our throats uh it it just it's not something that that I really liked uh reading and I don't know I don't know exactly what he was trying to do with it um but it it definitely wasn't working (laughs) uh for me uh now on page 328 Uh, Stephen King provides us a wonderful description of Castle Rock, which is important because this is a town that we are going to be spending a lot of time with. We've already spent time in Castle Rock um, in Cujo, in the Dead Zone. We'll be seeing Castle Rock again in the Dark Half, in Needful Things. Um, It's an important town in uh, the Stephen King universe, so it's important that we get, you know, wonderfully rich descriptions, such as Behind us was Castle Rock, spread out on the long hill that was known as Castle View, surrounding its green and shady common. Further down Castle River you could see the stacks of the woollen mill spewing smoke into the sky the color of gunmetal and spewing waste into the water. The jolly furniture barn was on our left, and straight ahead of us the railroad tracks, bright and heliographing in the sun. They paralleled the Castle River, which was on our left. To the right was a lot of overgrown scrubland. There's motorcycle track there today. They have old scrambles every Sunday afternoon at 2pm. An old abandoned water tower stood on the horizon. Rusty and somehow scary. So, little descriptions like that go a long way in in putting together a a geography of Castle Rock. It's very important for us to to be able to have that. And his talents as a writer are on full display in the story, even though it's not a, a very long story. But, We have a great description of summer here um, on page 338. But there was more to that summer than our trip across the river to look for Ray Brower, although that looms the largest. Sounds of the Fleetwoods singing Come Softly to Me and Robin Luke singing Susie Darlin and Little Anthony popping the vocal on I Ran All the Way Home. Were they all the hits in that summer of 1960? Yes and no. Mostly yes. In the long purple evenings when rock and roll from WLAM blurred into the night baseball from WCOU, time shifted. I think it was all 1960, and that the summer went on for a space of years, held magically intact in a web of sounds, the sweet hum of crickets, machine gun roar of playing cards riffling against spokes of some kid's bicycle as he pedaled home for the late summer of cold cuts and iced tea. The flat Texas voice of Buddy Knott singing, come along and be my party doll and I'll make love to you, to you. And the baseball announcer's voice mingling with the song and with the smell of the freshly cut grass. This is very much Stephen King's um, past. He is very much working through his own memory and bringing it to the, the forefront. It's it's his love letter to his childhood, um, but there's a timeless quality here right? that I think that we can all plug into, and it's, it's scenes like this that, that make this story what it is. Now, King provides two scenes in a row where we see the faults of adults, so it's apparent now that it serves the same function to the narrative as a rain cloud on a sunny day. The golden summer that represented their youth is going to be washed away into the gray world of adulthood, where cashiers try to scam their customers, and landfill managers sick their attack dogs on children. But, <laughs> it I don't know, I, it's funny to me at this point. Um, I'm at the age where I just i can't relate to the kids the way that I'm supposed to. In the case of Milo, the manager of the dump, I believe that we're supposed to be on the boys' side, rebelling against this awful man. Um... I just see a guy of low stature, probably someone who doesn't have much self-respect. Just getting taunted by children after they hurt his dog. There's nothing worse than being mocked by children when you're mad at them, trust me. Now, I understand he's not a sympathetic character, but Teddy is so obnoxious in this scene that I can't help but side with Milo. Um, which, I don't know, it's just, it's funny because, of course, like I, I read that you know, as a kid and I'm all about the kids, but here I'm like, you know I'm almost shaking my fist like the angry old man on the on the porch for the kids on my lawn right but you know king makes me feel bad about myself <laughs> right away as soon as i feel that when teddy breaks down and tears in the next scene you know it's authentic because immediately the kids don't know what to do now i remember distinctly as a kid having no idea what to do when a friend started crying my instinct was to get help but for these boys there is no getting help they're on the the train tracks to their adulthood As they head into the woods, they head into their own future, and they can never turn back. Trains don't run backwards, after all. And he makes this metaphor explicit on page 399. There's a high ritual to all fundamental events. The rites of passage. The magic corridor where all the change happens. Buying the condoms. Standing before the minister. Raising your hand and taking the oath. Or, if you please... Walking down the railroad tracks to meet a fellow your own age halfway. The same as I'd walk halfway over to Pine Street to meet Chris if he was coming over to my house. Or the way Teddy would walk halfway down to Gate Street to meet me if I was going to his. It seemed right to do it this way. Because the rite of passage is a magic corridor. And so we always provide an aisle. It's what you walk down when you get married. What they carry you down when you get buried. Our corridor was those twin rails. And we walked between them, just hopping along toward whatever this was supposed to mean. You don't hitchhike your way to a thing like that, maybe. And maybe we thought it was also right that it should have turned out to be harder than we had expected. Events surrounding our hike had turned into what we had suspected was all along. Serious business. Now speaking of trains, the scene in which they cross the river has to be the best out of the entire novella specifically the passage in which Gordy relates the experience that comes when he realizes that the train is on its way. Now look, this isn't a horror novel, but it's not without suspense. And the scene is incredible. Now after the train scene comes the crux of this story. It's not about a boy mourning the loss of his brother, or even the search for a body. It's about the reality of the future and the realization that you can't always bring everything you want into it. There have to be sacrifices. In the case of Gordy, he is faced with the fact that soon he will have to sacrifice his friends in order to fill fulfill his potential. To a child whose only life is defined by his friendships. This is a terrifying idea, but it's a necessary one. Between pages three seventy six and three hundred seventy nine, um, Chris lays it all out for, for Gordy. Um, specifically stating that, Your friends drag you down, Gordy. Don't you know that? He pointed at Vern and Teddy, who were standing and waiting for us to catch up. They were laughing about something. In fact, Vern was just about busting a gut. Your friends do. They're like drowning guys that are holding onto your legs. You can't save them. You can only drown with them. So, you know, like I said, if this hadn't been pointed out to him by Chris, Gordy might have thrown his life away. But Chris is the one to break it to him, saving him. Just as he had saved Teddy when he had caught him falling out of the tree. Um, Oh, my God. So it's a great conversation between Chris and, and, and Gordy. But, you know, I mean, just in case we didn't get it, uh, this conversation is then hammered over our heads, shoved down our throats, and screamed at us from the mountaintops just in case we didn't get it. We get a dream sequence that is so on the nose, it takes away the conflict that King is trying to establish, the conflict that he'd already established with the conversation between he and Chris. You know, so what was very organic and natural and and poignant, you know, in that moment is just, it's a chance to just kind of create a creepy scene Um, that I, I just, that to me, I, I didn't think was, was really warranted and I wish that it wasn't included. Now, eventually they arrive at the body and once they do, Their journey's at an end, right? You know, I mean, they have one final test before they exit their childhoods, and that comes with the confrontation between the boys and the bullies. But it's more than just bully versus victim. It's a fight of control over their own futures. Will they be subservient to the authorities that have already been uh, presented to us as corrupt, here on display in the form of the bullies? Or will they buck the conformity and live life on their own terms? And Chris takes charge here um, with the gun, which becomes a very, very adult moment. Um, and with it, they, they take control of their lives. Um, and after that, they, they go their separate ways, each one on their own path. Um, and unfortunately, only one of the four um, has a path that extends further than the others. Um, now, I'm going to talk, like, very briefly about some of the characters here. Uh, so, I mean, Gordy, you know, I mean, we learned that Gordy, you know, everything that we need to know about him is, is because of his brother, right? You know, I mean, he's, he's suffering the loss of his older brother while his parents have retreated inward, you know. If they were ever present in his life, they, they aren't any longer, and they were barely present when, when the brother was alive you know and the thing is that they're old enough to be his grandparents you know they're distant and apathetic to gordy you know choosing instead to live with the ghost of the dead brother you know i mean king even makes a point to have a scene in which gordy's father is watering a dead garden you know i mean it's just it's not as if gordy had uh, dennis had made his life better you know even when he was alive gordy lived in his shadow you know so this is a character that is you know just on the verge you know of so much i mean he's in constant pain um so he needs this quest you know he needs to go out he needs to you know for him it's a way to embrace life you know even when he's seeking in a way death right um and when it comes to chris king waits to give us anything about chris um other than his name at first first we meet you know gordy and then Teddy, then Vern, and then he really starts to get into Chris. After all the other characters, we learn about Chris's father, who, as King puts it, was always on a mean streak, often beating Chris so bad he had to stay home from school. The only thing worse than his father is his family's reputation, and in the eyes of the townsfolk, he's just as bad. But this is a character that is brave, smart, loyal, and heroic. King makes the point to relate a time in which Chris had almost magically saved Teddy's life by managing to grab a handful of hair as Teddy plummeted from a tree. So, when we eventually meet the body, right, with the discovery of the body, Gordy is able to come to terms with the loss of his brother. Furthermore, he's come to the end of his childhood, a path that ends with a literal child's body that serves as a metaphor for his own death of sorts. The implication of this body suggests that the boys are entering a world of adulthood, one that is cold and dangerous, where older brothers die and fathers can melt the ears off their children. It's the climax, as I said earlier, to this story, and with it, the concept of death becomes a reality. So now I'm going to get into um, the Kingisms that I found within this particular story, and the first and foremost, I mean, the most important one here. Um, and actually, actually, to, to take a step back, I mean, Kingisms um, are, are what I call just patterns that that Stephen King repeats, right? Trope,s traits of his writing. Um. So first is Castle Rock, right? Um. You know, I, I on page three hundred thirty three. You know, he he even references Cujo, and Cujo, in terms of when this is taking place, hasn't happened yet. To present day, Gordy, it has happened, and so he's able to actually reference Cujo when talking about um. Oh, the name of the dog that I can't think of, Chomper. And we have ace merrill um ace you know who first appears here who will later spoiler alert appear in needful things um you know mrs uh chalmers makes an appearance here who is a minor character in both kujo and needful things aunt of uh, needful things character um polly so needful uh sorry castle rock is th- this is like the oh, not, not the first real one but this is the the first real one where stephen king sort of develops the heart of, of Castle Rock. Um, and you know, he's definitely going to kind of go back to this Castle Rock, um, when it comes time for needful things. Uh, second kingism, um, is the magic of childhood. Uh, you know, like I said, this is the template that's going to later be used for it. Um, everything about this book is a prototype for that story. The, the dead brother, (laughs) the last summer of childhood um, the mythology of the best friends that cannot last, the bullies. The only thing missing from this story um, is a supernatural child-eating clown. But everything else is so, so similar. Um, and, yeah, it's just, it's it's a huge Stephen Kingism. ism um, Three, we have Stephen King uh, referencing Chamberlain, Maine, which is the hometown of prom queen herself, Carrie White uh number four is a very favorite uh stephen kingism and and it's that of bullies we see bullies in a lot of his work we saw we saw bullies in carrie we saw a bully briefly in um uh salem's lot um we've seen bullies in uh greg stillson in the dead zone as a sort of bully um and you know there's bullies in in short stories in night shift specifically sometimes they come back and bullies rear their ugly head again um this is not the last time we'll see bullies um as i mentioned earlier we'll see bullies again when it comes time for it and speaking of it uh dairy is mentioned and i believe this is the first time dairy has been mentioned unless i'm wrong um but i don't recall seeing dairy before this time and it's just one line and it's never mentioned again um i don't even know if stephen king was aware of it um but dairy of course is the um city that uh stars, it's, it's the setting of, of it, which um, much like Castle Rock, I'm sorry, much like um, si- uh, <laughs> uh, Salem's lot, is um, a character unto itself. Uh, the number six, Stephen Kingism is I okay AYUH. Um, just a little dialectical uh, choice um, on the part of Stephen King to illustrate the the mainness of his characters. Number seven, uh, another popular Stephen Kingism, is that the main character is a writer. You know, Through him, through Gordy, King is able to speak about writing in a way that uh, you know, Ben Mears from Salem's Lot or Jack Torrance from The Shining um, had not been able to. With Gordy, the the novella gets metatextual. So, for instance, the boys joke about the impracticality of uh, the name of the fictional town Gordy used for his stories, which is then turned on its ear when Gordy starts making fun of the real, quote-unquote, town names, such as Castle Rock and Jerusalem's Lot. Furthermore, Verne becomes the petulant reader demanding to know what happens after the end, infuriated with the storyteller for not knowing what happens next. And Gordy even refers to his readers as Gentle Reader, which Stephen King will adopt later, as constant reader, so this was a way for Stephen King to pour a lot of himself into, um, as he tends to whenever it comes with the writer as the main character. Our eighth Stephen Kingism um, is alcoholism. All right, um, we have definitely seen this manifest itself before. We've seen it in *Salem's Lot* with Father Callahan. We've seen it with um, Jack Torrance in *The Shining*. We see it here um, in *The Body*. Chris is terrified of being an alcoholic because um, his father is an alcoholic, so it's something that he's he's clearly struggling with. Um, the character Chris, um, number ten. I'm sorry, number nine. Um, page three eighty-eight. We have the use of the N word, and I am so over it all right um the two two of the boys are talking to each other um uh, and i just i i can't sorry i i'm just kind of like losing my my thoughts here um uh, so i i've talked about this before on on the Kingcast, and um you know i i've had listeners actually write in to share their thoughts um which i really appreciate um Because, again, I do not believe that Stephen King is a racist at all. And, in fact, you know, with this here, you know, coming of age in the 1960s, um, you know, he definitely grew up during the era of the Civil Rights Movement. I believe that he he stands for for everyone. He's an optimistic writer that believes in humanity. Um, I do not believe he's racist, but, man, he tends to use the N-word in order for us to... In this case, I don't even know if we're supposed to dislike a character. He just drops it, um, and he can. He has every right to. You know, I mean, that's that's a that's a huge debate that is beyond me. You know, where the rights lie um, to this word? When can it be used? When it cannot be used? I mean, I'm I'm. It's not even a criticism of Stephen King. I'm not necessarily criticizing him. I'm just pointing it out. Um, you know, I'm, right now I'm looking at my Blu-ray collection. I own every movie by Quentin Tarantino, right? Who you know the last movie he made um, is a movie that I happen to just I just bought a poster of um, Django Unchained, which I think it's a great film, and that movie is littered with the N word. It is just it is it is on so much display. Um, it's uncomfortable to watch. Um, and Spike Lee, the filmmaker, hates Quentin Tarantino for his use of the N word because he feels as though he Quentin Tarantino doesn't have the right to use it. So. I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's one of those things. Like for whatever reason, I think that Quentin Tarantino can get away with it, and yet I get a little uncomfortable whenever Stephen King uses it. So I, it's it's definitely something worth talking about. I'm talking about it, and I'm not saying anything about it because I don't even know what to say about it. Um, but it comes up again on page 388 if you're looking for it. Um, and then I'm, <coughs> excuse me, on. Uh, Number 11 of Stephen Kingisms, we have a uh, reference to uh, the Shawshank Prison, um, which, of course, uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption is a short story included within this uh, collection as well. Um, so it's the second time within this collection that he's referring to the Shawshank Redemption. He refers to the events of the Shawshank Redemption in um, Apt Pupil. So those are all of the Stephen Kingisms that I found. I'm sure there are more. I'm definitely sure there are more. But those are the ones that I found, and that's that's good for now. So the only thing that we have less, left left um, is the quote. You know, what piece of text boils all of this down to its barest essence? Um, and I think it's a very famous line from the movie. Um, you know, it, in fact, it's the last line of of the movie um so it's it's a bit popularized but i think that it's it it speaks to everything that that stephen king um was writing about here and the quote is this i never had any friends later on like the ones i had when i was 12 jesus did you I think, I mean, there's more, I mean, there's more that I that you could, that I think that you could pull out of this. I, I think that, you know, I read earlier the quote about the, the, the friends dragging you down and, and making you drown. I think that could just as easily be the quote. This one's a lot more optimistic um, and it, it has that wistfulness um, um, and the nostalgic piece that I think is important here. So that's, that's what I'm sticking with. So um, thanks for sticking around, everyone. That's kind of all that I have to say about uh, the body But make sure you stick around next week as I um, head back into Castle Rock to talk about uh, the 1986 Rob Reiner adaptation, Stand By Me. Um, If you have any thoughts on the body or anything having to do with Stephen King, um, your experience reading the, the body for the first time, um, or any of uh, your Stephen King you know, thoughts, please write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr. Everything you could search for is Stephen Kingcast. And if you have time, I ask you know, just head on on to, to iTunes and uh, write a review if, if you have some time on your hands. Um, because uh, the more um, reviews we get the more the uh, word will will spread so thank you everyone for listening um, and I'll see you here all next week same king time, same King channel Stephen Kingcast I want, want you to know I love I love you so please hold hold me so tight. All through the night I speak song